Welcome back. It is Reading Through the New Testament. Um, thank you so much for joining us this week. This week we are walking through, uh, this is for the week of, by the way, for September 25th, uh, the Sunday of September uh, 25th. And so we are going to uh, begin uh, reading through the uh, pastoral epistles, uh, the uh, letters that Paul writes to uh, Timothy, one and two Timothy, and also to Titus. And these are important letters uh, that we are going to begin reading because, in many ways, they give us helpful and important insights into uh, the life of the church. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, who is, I believe, in Ephesus. Uh, Yeah, he says in verse 3 of chapter 1 that I want you to remain at Ephesus. He wants Timothy there to um, uh, guard against and teach against false doctrine. And he's also wanting uh, Timothy to understand how he should behave in the household of God. He wants Timothy to understand how he should uh, serve and and live and uh, teach uh, and work in the household of God, that is the church. So in many ways, these pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy uh, and Titus, are very helpful for us because they help us to understand uh, what life in the church should uh, further look like. In particular, the the pastoral life. Um, they from First and Second Timothy, we get the qualifications for uh, elders slash pastors slash overseers. The same word is used interchangeably for uh, these these group of people, the leaders in the church that are to teach and to care for and shepherd and uh, oversee the life of the church. There's, there's that group of people. And then there's the deacons who have the authority and, and are called upon uh, to uh, uh, take care of the, uh, particularly the financial and the um, uh, physical needs of the church. So we have elders, we have deacons, and Paul is here writing to Titus and to Timothy uh, about how they are to uh, function, how the local church is meant to have uh, some some organization, right? And that's so true. The church is a community. It's a community of faith. It's a community uh, built up on and centered around Jesus Christ. But it's also a, a community that has some level of organization. Now there we can do we can be wrong in two different ways. On the one hand, we can say um, that uh, we need to organize every aspect of the community life and do over organization. And uh, that can be a danger, can't it? Sometimes the the church loses that feel. Uh, the truth of what it is to be a community, uh, a group of, of, of people together in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can too organize the church so much so that our organizational structures um, be, get in the way of the life of the church. On the other hand, we can go in the other direction too much and not have enough structure or organization so that the church's life is kind of chaotic. We, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that God is a God of order and that everything is to be done decently and in order. Therefore, we need officers. We need these roles, these positions in the church, namely 
elders or pastors or overseers, all the same, referring to the same uh, group of people. And we also need deacons. We need these two groups of people to uh, who are uh, called by God through the vote of the church, through the congregation, and they are entrusted with the authority and the responsibility to serve the church uh, by preaching the word, if you're an elder, or preaching, teaching, overseeing the life of the church. Um, and then if you're a deacon, you're called upon to serve the uh, needs of the church, uh, particularly those who are in need in the congregation, uh, to take care of of uh, those who are maybe poor or those who are in need in the congregation or to, to, to serve tables, to do any number of things maybe uh, that, that the church needs done. Um, in order for its life to be take to to be carried out in this world, so uh, we need we need some level of structure, and that's where the pastoral epistles are really helpful. It also highlights to us the the nature of what it should be to be uh, a leader or a pastor in the church, and so reading these pastoral epistles is very helpful uh, to the people of God because it helps them understand. It helps all of us as the whole church, whether or not we're pastors or not, or deacons or not. Because it helps us to understand what um, what life kind of should look like in our church and what's important, what's not important, um, how we should live together. And then on the other hand, it's helpful for those who are in positions like, like being a, a pastor or a deacon because then we understand uh, what our job is and where we fit into this life of this this body of Christ, this local church that God has placed us in. So we're going to begin reading in First Timothy uh, today. I believe this week we're reading verses chapters one through chapter five. I want to this week do something that I've not done before, and I found this recently. Um, again, it's it's from a guy we've read before, Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, Baptist preacher from the eighteen hundreds, um, and but I, I he wrote a he, it's kind of like a devotional study Bible um, of sorts. And I believe it's called the interpreter, and it was actually intended for use for families. To uh, so, and what it is is it's every day it's divided. So, for instance, um, uh, the section on one Timothy uh, doesn't cover the whole book. It covers chapter one, chapter four, and chapter six of First Timothy, but it goes by the day, morning and evening of each day. So December 7th, this is for the morning, and then December 7th in the evening, and then December 8th for the morning uh, to walk you through um, the uh, the book of, of 1 Timothy to kind of give you a gist of what's going on. Also, what he does is he, so what it is, um, and you can find this for free. Um, I found it on a, on a, on a seminary website for free, a, a, a PDF of it. Um, and it's, it's very interesting because what it does is it gives you the, the text of the chapter to read, but in interspersed within that text are some comments that Spurgeon, uh, gives you to further illuminate, um, the passage. So uh, you'll have, uh, the text, the, the whole chapter there, and then he'll give in, in italics there in, uh, you can see the, um, the little comments that he's got interspersed within the text itself. So as you're reading this, it's meant to be devotional. So you read the text of scripture, but then you also see Spurgeon making some comments here and there. 
uh, throughout. And also one of the things that I think is, is cool about this too is I believe I've heard before that Spurgeon during uh, worship, he would preach. And oftentimes if you uh, know uh, anything about Charles Spurgeon, his church in London, um, worship was, was quite simple, but also um, one of the things they did, right. He would often preach. And whenever he would preach, he'd often preach just basically from a very small Uh, like, uh, you know, maybe one verse. Oftentimes you'll see Spurgeon sermons and he's basically centering around one verse. But whenever he also did these Bible readings, and I believe what he did, and I could be wrong about this, so don't quote me, but I believe what he did was he would walk through the text of scripture and make comments through it while reading the Bible. So kind of like how we read the Bible um, on Sunday mornings, he would do that, but then make comments throughout these longer readings of scripture. Um, so that, that's a very interesting, uh, thing they did in that church. Um, and so anyway, it's kind of, in some ways they're, they're, it's kind of similar to what this devotional Bible, um, is, uh, going to do for us, uh, today. So what I want to do is simply read this. Now, what you're going to notice is I'm reading part of the text and because of the, the time this was written, the text is from, I'm assuming the, uh, authorized version the the King also known as the King James version. Um, and so I'm going to read one Timothy one and then one Timothy four and then one Timothy six. I know six is not, um, we're not supposed to, uh, do this till next week, but, I'm going to, he doesn't have anything else for um, uh, 1 Timothy, so I'm going to give you six this week, and then we can uh, jump into 2 Timothy uh, uh, next week. So uh, listen to this, and again, note the nature. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read it straight through, and and you'll note that not everything I read is scripture, but um, you'll, you'll probably be able to catch, uh, and I'll try to... Uh, well, you'll probably be able to catch where the comments are coming from Spurgeon, and, and you'll, you'll be able to pick it up, I think, uh, fairly, fairly easily, I believe. So this is from 1 Timothy 1. This was actually for December 7th uh, for the morning, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And he r- opens up here and says, uh, Hitherto we have only read portions from Paul's letters to churches. We now turn to one of his four epistles to individual Christians. And those four epistles, by the way, um, Spurgeon's referring to are 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Um, It was written to Timothy, who was very dear to the apostle as one of the most affectionate, faithful, and gifted of his spiritual children. So here's 1 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Jewish teachers of the law, Spurgeon says, introduced into the church as a kind of mystic philosophy, made up of foolish legends, spiritualizings, and ascetical precepts, which Paul did not hesitate to call old wives' fables and profane babblings. 
Now, by ascetical precepts, what he's talking about there real quick, I'm making a side comment here is um, like later on, um, they were probably, uh, you know, maybe saying you need to follow this rule or that rule or maybe don't touch, don't taste, don't do these kinds of things. That's kind of uh, what an ascetical. So, you know, maybe don't eat this certain thing or do this certain practice or fast at this certain time. Those kinds of things. Ascetical precepts. Timothy was stationed at Ephesus to do battle with these mischief makers and to set the church in order. In these times, he's talking about his present time, there are tendencies to absurdities of the same kind, and we should be upon our guard against them. That which pretends to be wiser, deeper, or holier than the word of God must come from the father of lies. That's a very good reminder, isn't it, actually, that um, in our efforts to Uh, follow the word of God, we must not think that we are wiser or deeper or holier um, as if we can go beyond what scripture teaches us and somehow come up with even better rules to make us even deeper and more sincere followers of Jesus Christ. We have to be very careful about that. Um, And that can happen even, that happens today, all the time, actually. Um, You only need to go and turn on the TV maybe or or go to your local Christian bookstore or see what books Christians are reading. And sometimes there can be these same tendencies of some new step, some new thing to do that can take you to the next level of your Christian faith. And that's what these people were doing. Yes, Spurgeon continues in verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Spurgeon says, Some teachers of our own day are forever raising questions upon points of no practical value. Such vain jangling let us keep clear of and follow the simple teachings of our Lord Jesus. He continues here, There's verses, uh, this is uh, verse 8, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust." And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Spurgeon says, this is a Christian proverb, an axiom of our creed, familiar in our mouths as household words and right well does it deserve to be repeated and received by all mankind. Verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to, to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
Spurgeon says, at thought of the grace which saved him, Paul broke forth into a doxology, and well might he, and well he might. And that's a, another thing to be reminded, isn't it? That notice how Paul turns from the grace of God and is so taken by it. And the grace of God, what God has done for uh, sinners in Jesus Christ, Paul says, notice, and also, by the way, notice he says, I am chief. He doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. I used to be a really bad guy. He says, I am the chief of sinners right now. That's who I am. And Paul's been a Christian for a while now, right? And has anyone lived a, a more holy life than the Apostle Paul other than Jesus Christ, right? I mean, the Apostle Paul was, was, a, was a guy who, who followed the Lord devoutly, and yet he still says, I am the chief of sinners. And yet what I, what I was saying here is he is so moved and reminded by the grace of God that it moves him to praise to the King eternal, uh, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Paul continues in verse 18, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Spurgeon says here, perhaps they were left to follow out the natural tendency of their doctrines under the influence of Satan until they should see by actual experience where their teachings would land them and would then have grace to repent. May the Lord keep us free from all false doctrine, lest we come under the like condemnation. And at the very end, he uh, has this to be said, to be sung or read. Now to the God of victory, immortal thanks be paid, who makes us conquerors while we die through Christ, our living head. Turning to chapter four, uh, now for the evening section here, he says this, in this letter to Timothy, Paul denounces many of those forms of error, which have been the plague of the Christian church in all ages. Those who deal with spirits or profess to do so, those who multiply forms and ceremonies, those who make religion to lie in meats and drinks, and those who attach importance to legends and traditions are all heavily censured as they deserve. He writes this, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Spurgeon says this, leading on to the worship of angels, fear of demons, and attempts at commerce with the dead. In every age, some deceivers and deceived ones have wandered in this direction. Far from us be such darkness. Verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Spurgeon says this, as a hot iron deadens the part which it burns, so is their conscience no longer sensitive, and they can utter falsehood unblushingly. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Spurgeon says this, how well this describes the Church of Rome, uh, speaking about the Roman Catholic Church, which combines both superstitions. Other sects also have decried marriage and issued laws as to eating and drinking, making that to be sin, which is no sin. And what Spurgeon is addressing there, right, the the Roman Catholic Church forbids their their clergy to marry, uh, to be married, at least the, 
um, yeah, the, the priests. And also they command them to abstain from foods at certain times. And Spurgeon is highlighting here that these are superstitions. These are man-made traditions, um, which uh, it's, you know, for instance, we would say it's, it's some men are called to singleness, but that is not a command. They are forbidding marriage. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church does. And so we would vehemently disagree with that. In fact, we would say um, to do so leads to more sin um, in other ways. And also the, uh, the, the adding of laws, um, which God has not commanded. Jesus Christ says, um, you follow the, the commandments of men um, as though they were the commandments of God. You, you uh, put the things of men in the place of God. That's uh, Matthew chapter 15. Uh, verse four, for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Spurgeon writes, to hold fast the true faith is one of our first duties. To be forever chopping and changing is a most unhappy and dangerous condition. Verse 7, but refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little. Spurgeon says, or a little. It may, when rightly used, promote bodily health, but that is all. Verse 8 continued, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Spurgeon writes, all men derive some benefit from Jesus' death. They are spared, they enjoy the common blessings of providence, and they are placed under mediatorial rule. Yet redemption has its special design and effect, and these have to do only with believers. The Savior has bought some good things for all men, and all good things for some men. Are we believers? Then in a special sense, Jesus is our Savior. Now what Spurgeon is saying here, because Paul writes that Jesus is the Savior, God is the Savior of all men, but especially of those that believe. And the idea is he's the Savior of all men, not in the sense that everybody gets to go to heaven. There are people that teach that God is going to forgive and save everybody who's ever lived. That would be called universalism. And that is a heresy. That is a, a dangerous teaching. And to accept it is to put your is to be on the path putting your soul in jeopardy because that is such a dangerous teaching. And the church historically, all Christians have, uh, whether they be Roman Catholic or Protestant or whatever, have rejected that teaching. So it can't mean that. But what Spurgeon is saying is what this means. He's the savior of all men in the sense that um, Jesus Christ, by his death, has given common blessings in a sense, right? Jesus doesn't simply rule over the church. He's also the king of all the earth. He's the, in, in Revelation chapter 1, we read that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings on the earth. And so, as the good and just king that he is, he doesn't simply rule over believers, but there is a sense in which he rules over the whole earth. He has the whole world in his hands. And because Jesus is so good, there are um, these common 
blessings, these blessings that are not salvation, but are good blessings because of Jesus. And that's what he's highlighting. There are um, special blessings um, uh, that come to people because of Jesus Christ and and because of God and what he has done. But yet at the same time, he says, uh, Paul says that he's the savior of all men, but especially of those that believe. And so redemption, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he came and laid down his life, Jesus tells us he came to lay down his life for the sheep. So while Jesus Christ um, is uh, does offer his salvation to all, when he died on the cross, that redemption was designed by him ultimately to be applied to those that the Father has given to him. And so Spurgeon says here, the Savior has bought some good things for all men and all good things for some men. That's a very good phrase. So he's bought all good things for some men, for believers. And the only reason we believe is because of his grace. He even bought your faith. Have you ever thought about that? On the cross, if you're a believer, Jesus Christ bought your faith. He bought your repentance so that you would be able to believe and repent in the gospel and believe the gospel. That's, that's amazing. That's a wonderful gift that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. So then in the most special sense that Jesus Christ is our savior, we who believe those, um, who have, uh, who have, uh, been given by God, the father to Jesus Christ, those who have been chosen or elected as Paul will say in Ephesians chapter one, uh, before eternity, um, those who are his people through faith in the promised savior. Spurgeon, uh, the verse 11. Now these things command and teach, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word in conversation in charity in spirit in faith in purity till I come give attendance to reading to exhortation to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Spurgeon says this, even when the miraculous gifts of the spirit were in the church, the most favored ministers were to study and meditate. How much more than it is now their duty. Those who speak without thinking seldom say anything worth thinking of. Hmm. What Spurgeon here is highlighting is the fact that there are pastors who think that, or, and we see this sometimes too, right? With teachers or preachers who think that they are being, um, that they don't need to, um, that they don't need to, um, sorry, you, you just heard my cell phone going off during this recording. That's fun. So I need to turn that down, don't I? Um, but what he's saying is, is what you're hearing, what you're, what you're, um, what, what some of these pastors will do is they think, well, um, that they don't need to think or study the scriptures and really put the work in to understand what the text is saying, because it is hard work. It is laborious work if you really do it well. Um, and Spurgeon here is saying, even whenever the spirit was miraculously working, right, in the apostolic age, right, where we had speaking in tongues, we had all sorts of miraculous things going on with the spirit to confirm what was what the message of Christ. He says, even then, Timothy is being called upon to study, to not neglect the gift that God has given him. And what that would mean for Timothy was put in the work, be diligent, do what you need to do to be ready to preach and to study and to share the, the gospel. And so similarly today, as ministers, especially uh, that he's addressing here, ministers need to study and meditate. And his Spurgeon in his typical 
Um, wonderful turn of phrase says, those who speak without thinking seldom say anything worth thinking of. Well, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Verse 15, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, Spurgeon says, or be thou holy in them. Be absorbed in thy work. Uh, the verse continues, that, they, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Spurgeon closes here with this comment. Care as to our doctrine will both preserve the teacher himself from serious error and keep his hearers from the same evil. This should lead us to be very prayerful and careful as to what we receive and what we communicate to others. Doctrines are not to be trifled with. They are life and death matters. Lord, teach us thy truth. Now, in our age right now, um, so often doctrine is a dirty word, and we hear things like doctrine divides, um, and it does divide. It does, and it actually, in some ways, and in, in, in if understood properly, if it's the right doctrines, they should divide, because there is a division between the, what what is Christianity and what is not, what is in the Bible and what is not. Or if we're in um, separate types of churches, right? We're not saying other people aren't Christians, but different denominations, right? Um, well, because we have differing convictions about what the Word of God teaches uh, concerning maybe baptism or church government or different things like that, um, the doctrine is important. And similarly here, Spurgeon says, doctrines are not matters, are not to be trifled with. We should be... Um, we should be concerned with true teaching because true teaching is going to influence the way we think, the way we live, the way we approach God, the way we treat other people. It's not that we want to live up in some ivory tower. We don't. We live in this world, but we want to make sure that our teaching is right, that, what the, that we understand what Scripture is teaching us because when we understand what Scripture is teaching us, and the way we ought to think, that will then influence how we live our lives. It'll influence the holiness of our, of our manner of living, of our conversation, of, uh, of our interactions with each other, the way we treat our family, the way we go to work. All of that is influenced by what we think the Bible teaches. So we need to, get, we need to realize that, that doctrine is life and death, um, and it's very important. Spurgeon closes with this little, um, at the very end, he has a little thing called to be sung or read. Um, Make me to understand thy precepts and thy will, thy wondrous works on every hand I'll sing and talk of still. Okay, now closing with uh, chapter six here from First Timothy, uh, Spurgeon says this, the first epistle to Timothy concludes with a practical exhortation relating to various classes in the church and with an earnest word to the young minister himself. By classes, he's talking about different groups, different types of people like widows or, you know, so on, so on, uh, different types of people, um, uh, widows he dealt with, I guess, in, in verse uh uh, chapter 5, I believe, but he's going to deal with uh, groups of people within the church. He says this, beginning of verse 1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the same benefit. These things teach and exert. Spurgeon writes, for Christian servants to take undue liberties because their employers are believers is shameful. 
they ought rather to render them higher respect and more willing service. Verse 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Spurgeon says this, it makes us truly happy by making our little into much and sweetening all the trials of life. Poor and content is rich and rich enough. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Spurgeon says, enough is as good as a feast and frequently better, for it saves us from the ills of surfeit, the sure punishment of greediness. Verse 9, But they that will be rich fall into temptation, and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, while, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Spurgeon says this money can be used for the best of purposes, but the love of it is idolatry and the cause of countless evils. How is it that so many professed Christians live only to make money and are just as eager after wealth as the avowed worldling? And I think those words right there, I mean, whether you uh, make a ton of money or whether you don't make so much money, Money can be an idol, can't it? It can be the thing that we hanker after, that we think about, that we desire, that we work for, that we want. And so we treasure it. And I think particularly um, that it, that can be a danger. We need to be aware of money can be good for good purposes, as Spurgeon says, and it can be used for the best of purposes. We praise God whenever that is the case. But for all of us, no matter how much we may make, the question is, is do we love it? Are we working for it only? And um, that's a pretty, pretty convicting thing because in particular, because um, uh, in our society, I do think that in some ways, and this can even creep into the church, is that sometimes we're praising people because they're hard workers or they've got a great job. And it's almost as if um, it's okay to want a lot of money as long as you're willing to put the work in. And sometimes that's upheld as a virtue. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with making good money. There's nothing wrong with having a good job that you enjoy and that is uh, good for you. There's nothing wrong with, um, you know, working hard. There's those are those are those can be very good things. But the the problem is is why are we doing it? And as Spurgeon says, it are we working only to make money, or are we just as eager as he says after wealth as an avowed worldling? Because then there is no difference between us and the world. Um, we just want to be careful about that. As he points out, it is idolatry, and we need to be careful because our hearts are bent towards that. 
And uh, we want to make sure with prayer and with constant, you know, being in the church, uh, hearing preaching, prayer, uh, accountability, but our, just our marriage and our, our lives and in all sorts of ways that we're not being led astray. That, that's, a, that's a good word to us, I think, and very pertinent uh, to us. Uh, verse 11, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality and dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Spurgeon writes this, having spoken to those who seek riches, he now admonishes those who possess them that they must not hoard for themselves, but lay up treasure in heaven by generously distributing their goods on earth. Have we property? Let us hold it as stewards of the Lord. It is both our duty and our happiness to use all that we have to glorify him who, though he was rich, yet became poor for our sakes. Is he truly ours? Then let all ours be truly his. Uh, that's, a, that's a good line, isn't it? Is he truly ours? Do we, do we have Jesus Christ? Do we believe in him? Have we looked upon him as our Savior? Then let everything that you and I own and are be his. Verse 20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee, all men. Spurgeon closes with this, O Lord, grant that this grace may be with us also, this day until the last great day. Amen. Let us in life and death thy steadfast truth declare and publish with our latest breath thy love and guardian care. Well, that's, uh, that's the close there for First Timothy. I hope you've enjoyed that. It's a little different as we're actually reading the text and having those comments. Um, I think, it, it, again, it's, I, I was excited to find this resource because I think it's so helpful, um, and, it, and it further shows us, um, in a sense, what we're doing is we're reading the Bible with uh, a, a man who was used greatly by God and also uh, who, can, who has much to teach us about what the text of Scripture means and helping us. He's kind of a, a teacher, a guide to help us, and I think it's very helpful. I've enjoyed it a lot. So keep reading through the pastoral epistles. We'll be back next week as we're going to begin diving into Second Timothy as well. Thank you for listening to this. Take care and God bless.